Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. I think now more than ever, we probably need desperately to be in God's word. Uh, Hopefully you guys agree with me with everything that's going on in and around us in the world. And we need to be grounded on the truth. And Jesus said, I am the truth. And the truth is the word of God from John 1, actually. And ironically, I have that in the message today. So we're going to get to talk about that. But we're going to continue in Revelation. We're going to finish chapter 14 today. And we are still in this parenthetical break between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. So we've gone through up to, well, through 13 chapters. And chapter one was the unveiling of who Jesus is as our king and our savior, the, the most high, the prince of princes. So we went through that in chapter one, the unveiling of who he is. Chapters two and three were the seven letters to seven churches, which is all about us in this room today. And then chapter four, verse one on from the rapture is where we are. So we've gone through chapters four and five in the throne room of the universe, where we are there with God surrounded with cherubim and angels and a heavenly multitude around his throne. Jesus comes forward. He takes the scroll in chapter 6, or really chapter 5, but he starts to loose it in chapter 6, and we've gone through the first six seals, and there's a break. What you'll notice is there's three sets of judgments, seals, trumpets, and bowls, and each one has seven, but between the sixth and the seventh, there's a break in the structure of the book. And so even the architecture of the book and the way the Lord wrote it, it's deliberate and it's designed by our creator. So between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was one chapter. And then the seventh opens up the next seven. And so that's why in the Jewish culture, they call it a heptatic structure. So heptatic is just, it's a fancy word for seven. So it's a structure of sevens. The seventh seal opened the seven trumpets. And then between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, we've got five chapters, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. So we're actually finishing the last of that parenthetical break today in chapter 14, which is, it looks very doom and gloom, but if you're in Jesus, it is such a hopeful chapter. And so we're going to get into that, and then next week we'll start the unsealing of the bulls in chapter 15. So chapter 14, these five chapters we've been going through, Chapter 10 is the little book and the seven thunders. Chapter 11 is the temple and the two witnesses. We talked all about how during the seven-year tribulation, a temple must be standing. It's referenced to all over the Bible, Daniel, Matthew. It's in Thessalonians and then in Revelation. So four spots, the temple and the two witnesses. Chapter 12 is an overview of the entire Bible. It's the woman, the man-child, and the dragon. And it sets the stage for really the the tension between God and Satan throughout the entire Bible, and Satan trying to stop the messianic line of Jesus showing up on the earth. So chapter 12 is that overview of the whole Bible. 13, we went through the two beasts and the mark of the beast. Everyone has an opinion on it. 
right? Even if you don't know anything about the word of God, people have an opinion on 666 and the mark of the beast and all of that. So we hit that pretty hard. And then this is really part two of chapter 14, the lamb, the 144,000, and the doom for anyone that takes the mark. So we're going to finish the back half of that today from verse six on. So the chapter contains the following. It's the lamb. We looked at this last week. Jesus himself, the 144,000 who were sealed earlier in Revelation. If you'll notice that there's still 144,000 by the time you get to this point. So just like Jesus said in John, Father, all you've given me, I've lost none. So it's not 143,998. It's 144,000. They're all with him. They're sealed. And there's actually seven angels. The first angel with the eternal gospel. We're going to look at that today. The second angel with the doom of Babylon. The third angel with the fury of beast worshipers or earth dwellers. The fourth angel declaring the righteous dead. And then the fifth, sixth, and seventh angel calling for the grape harvest. And what is that all about? So it's so full of hope. This entire chapter is so full of hope. And it seems like very heavy in judgment. But you have to realize that as a righteous king... God cannot sit idly forever. So righteousness declares judgment, if you think about it. Crimes cannot go unpunished. You know, how much hope is there in, in somebody doing something and getting away with it, committing murder or committing some other grievous act and getting away with it? There's, not, there's no righteousness there. So God's judgment is just and it cannot rest forever. But praise God, we get to get, go home in the rapture before this all unfolds. And Jesus is victorious the whole time. So that's, that's the key. So we're going to start in verse 6 today. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. So there's that phrase again we've seen all through the book, the earth dwellers, people who their home and their worth and their place is on earth. It's not in heaven. And our, our inheritance, our worth should be in heaven. It should be with the king of kings. It should be the inheritance that we have to look forward to that Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. So, and again, we hit this hard last time. You are to be a pilgrim, a sojourner through the earth, not an earth dweller. You're not to have your roots here. So to the earth dwellers, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So what is the everlasting gospel? You know, it's amazing. You hear that phrase kind of thrown around a lot, but the Bible actually declares the gospel, believe it or not. In 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. So this is, this is how you are to stand if you are in Jesus. You're to stand on this foundation. And we looked at this a lot in 1 Corinthians 13, where Jesus laid the foundation, which was his sacrifice, and then everything you do in your life is built upon that. And then when you get before the Lord, he refines it with fire. Remember, there are two groups of things, wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, precious stones. And so the gold, silver, precious stones that remain is what you did in the spirit in living for God. And that's part of your inheritance that Jesus is preparing for you right now in John 14. So by which ye stand. 
by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ, here's the gospel, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. See, because he rose again, that's the proof, the testament, that his sacrifice was complete. So there was no resurrection before. There was no, if you died, there was no promise of resurrection yet. It was prophesied in the Bible, but it wasn't until he did it that then, if you remember in Matthew, all of those multitudes were resurrected after him, so he was the first fruits of our resurrection. And so that's the promise. So the word gospel here in the Greek, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. I will totally butcher it. But it literally means good or glad tidings. So that's what gospel means. It's good tidings. It's glad tidings. It's, it's a message of hope, right? It's a message of, hey, this is something that you can grab a hold of and hold on to it for your life. So there are fa- false gospels in the Bible, several of them. 2 Corinthians 11, Galatians 1. Gabriel had a gospel that he announced before John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. So again, if you find this word, if you track that word down, it's just glad or good tidings, okay? The angels to the shepherds in Luke 2, they brought a gospel or good tidings. The growth of the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 3 was about glad tidings. The seventh angel sounding the mystery of God back in Revelation 10, that was about glad tidings. The gospel of the kingdom to all nations in Matthew 24, that was about good or glad tidings. So this is all over the Bible. The, the term gospel, it just means a hopeful declaration, right? A glad tidings, something that you should be able to grab a hold of. So in verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So this concept of creation, we're going to talk about this in a minute. And Ryan actually hit it on it some in our announcements. But saying with a loud voice, so get the picture. During this time of the tribulation, these angels are going around heaven declaring the everlasting gospel, which is fear God and give glory to him. So salvation is available for anyone that wants it. But the, the problem is many of them will believe the lie and worship the Antichrist and the deceit that comes upon the entire world during this time. The false Messiah, the satanic trinity, the false prophet, the Antichrist, and Satan himself. But the fear of the Lord, so a lot of people are confused. What does fear of the Lord mean? You know, when you think about that, it's, it's more than just a reverence for God. It's something much deeper than that. It's something that you are to fear God. And what does that mean? So let's look at this all throughout the Bible. And it actually shows up 808 times in 110 verses in the Bible. So God clearly wants you to know what fear of the Lord means, because he puts it from the beginning to the end. And it's all over the Bible, 808 times. There are not many topics that are in the Bible 808 times. There's a lot in it but he's got this all throughout the Bible. So in Job 28, and unto man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, 
and to depart from evil is understanding. So if you fear the Lord, you will depart from evil because you will have wisdom and understanding. You will understand that you can't have a relationship with a holy, righteous God if you are living in sin, if you're living in, in an evil state. Now, you can still be saved. Do not misunderstand me. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It has to do with your sanctification and your relationship with him. Remember back to 1 Corinthians 3, some will even be saved as so yet by fire, meaning they're going to live their entire lives in a fleshly, worldly way and do nothing for the Spirit, but still get into heaven because they accepted Jesus. It's just a matter of, you're saved, that's great, now what did you do with it? So it doesn't have anything to do with your works. Your salvation has nothing to do with your works. It has, he did it all, and you can't add to it. You just can accept it. Then you have the authority to overcome sin in your life. So in Psalms 19, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. And the judgments of him are true and righteous. Psalms 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is part of the problem with our school system right now. The fear of the Lord has been removed from the school. And so you look at nationally our, our scores against the rest of the world and we're depleting, right, as a nation uh, we rank way, way down on the bottom in math, science, everything. It's because back in the 60s, we kicked God out of the schools. And so the fear of the Lord isn't there unless we go back to prayer and get it there, which is exactly what we need to do. So the fear of the Lord's beginning of all of that. Good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. In Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So look at that. The ones that despise the fear of the Lord in Proverbs are called fools. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit meant in 1 Corinthians 1. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It's hard to get people that are non-believers to understand that the entire universe hinges around one moment in 32 AD on a wooden cross in Judea. It's, it's, they treat it as total foolishness, but it's like the Bible said, it is to them that perish foolishness. And so be careful if you think that's foolishness because you're one of them that will perish. <laughs> so you don't want to think it's foolishness. You want to grab a hold of it with all you can and realize it is an eternal atonement for your sins that will forever pave a way for you to have relationship with your creator. So in Matthew 10, look at what Jesus says. Now this is some serious fear. Okay, in Matthew 10, 10, 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So that should be some fear. Do not fear the one that can put a gun to your head and take you out for serving Jesus. You're not to fear them. You are to fear the one that after that can cast you forever away from him. Because if, I'm telling you, if you want nothing to do with him in your life, he has a place prepared where you can have nothing to do with him. And you don't want to get to that point. So, Matthew 10, 28, that is, that is the essence of all that is the fear of the Lord. There is a reverence, yes, 
but it's something greater than that. You are an eternal being, and the question is, where are you going to spend it? So, worship him that is creator. So look at the end of this. Worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the water. You know, it's amazing how this concept is all over the Bible that worshiping the creator instead of the creation. And what do you see right now all over the world? You see people trying to get you to worship the creation. You know, they call it all kinds of things. Uh, Mother Earth, uh, Gaia, they have all these titles for it where, well, we just have to take care of Mother Earth. What does that mean? Uh, I think God in Genesis said, as long as there is man, there will be fall, winter, summer, and spring. So I think he's got it under control. We just have to worship him. So in John 1, let's talk about creation for a minute. There's a lot of creation verses in the Bible, but in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Who's that him? Jesus, right? A few verses down, you'll see, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So Jesus is the Word of God. He became flesh. He tabernacled amongst us. So worship him. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus made it all. Jesus, by his word, made everything. That includes Satan. That includes the fallen angels. That includes who we war with. Our war is not with flesh and blood. Remember Ephesians? But with principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. Jesus made those entities, those angels. They were worshiping around his throne. Satan was the cherub that covereth from Ezekiel and Isaiah. He, was, he led worship in heaven. So imagine the greatest worship leader and singer, and as God said, he was the sum of all wisdom, but yet he rebelled against God. So you don't often think about it, but I can imagine how deeply hurt that was for the Lord, because he was, he was in a very intimate relationship with him. Satan was the anointed cherub that covereth. He was over his, his throne, the mercy seat. But in Colossians 1, we get the same thing. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So in the Greek, that word consist literally means banded together. So by him, all things are banded together. And I love this because as an engineer, I was, I was wondering about this a long time ago. And how does Jesus band everything together? So physics for a, just a quick second. Uh, Ten times in Genesis, during the six days of recreation, we'll talk about that sometime, it says, and God said. So God spoke. He speaks. He, he spoke it into existence to hold it together and to put it all back in place. So if by him all things band together, what does that mean for our physical world around us, right? If you were to take a hydrogen atom and blow up the nucleus to the size of a golf ball, the nearest electron would be in downtown Oklahoma City if you were standing right here. Okay, so it'd be in downtown Oklahoma City just spinning about seven miles this way. That's how much emptiness, right, is in an atom, if you think of that scale. 
And if you ever played with magnets, you get two south poles. You know, you put them together, they repel. Two like charges repel. Well, how does an atom that's full of electrons that are like charges stay together? So you have these things going and spinning forever, it seems like. Well, the energy comes from the background. It's uh, absolute zero a vacuum from space. But these things are spinning around. And how, what is holding them together? Well, Colossians says it's Jesus that's holding them together. And, and I, I love this because modern science proved it a few years ago. They came out with an article. They've been looking for what holds together an atom, and they called it gluons. They didn't know what else to call it, so they just called it gluons. And they discovered that it's sound waves. Sound waves are what are holding together every single atom. When I saw that, I just immediately thought, well, that's Colossians 1. It's the voice of Jesus that's holding everything together. By him, all things consist or are held together. And it's amazing because we do now know that sound waves never disappear. When you say something, the decibels go down forever, but it never goes away. And so Jesus' voice from creation is still resonating, holding all of this together. And what is the most powerful force that we've discovered on earth? It's if you split that bond, right? It's called a nuclear bomb. It's splitting that atom open. And that's how much power is contained within one atom. But yet Jesus, just by his voice, is holding that together. And so he's holding it all together. We know from Peter that there will come a time that he lets go, right? Because the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Well, an element is just a bunch of atoms put together. So there will come a time at the end of the millennium when there's a new heaven and a new earth that Jesus just lets go. And all of it, as we know from the nuclear bomb, will just melt away. And so everything that you're looking at right now, don't get too attached to it because it's going somewhere else. <laughs> it's not, it's not, we're not taking it into eternity with us. So verse 8, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So the phrase is fallen, is fallen shows that it will happen suddenly, and it's established by God. And this is all the way back in Genesis 41. Remember, Joseph was interpreting Pharaoh's dream and because Pharaoh had the dream twice, it meant that it was sudden and established by God. So same thing. So this, this concept of it being spoken twice, that's what that means. And that's in Genesis 41, 32. This phrase, though, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is in Isaiah 21. And it's kind of sprinkled throughout six chapters in the Bible. So if you don't pay attention to Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq, on the banks of the Euphrates River, then you need to pay attention to it in the news because it has a destiny according to God's word. He spends six chapters in the Bible going through a judgment on Babylon that has never happened. It's in Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50, 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. So when we get to Revelation 17, we're, we'll look at it, and I'll show you a table that I made where you take those six chapters and you make a list of all of their characteristics in that chapter that are the same. That Babylon will be destroyed in one hour. The building blocks will never be reused. No one will inhabit it ever again. Okay, so if you take God at his word literally, that has not been fulfilled. Because right now, Saddam Hussein, when he was alive, 
spent millions and millions of dollars rebuilding it, rebuilding Nebuchadnezzar's palace with the very bricks that Nebuchadnezzar used to build it in the first place. So God says those will never be used again when this judgment's fulfilled. So that clearly has not happened, if you take God at his word. It'll never be inhabited again. Well, he hired locals to do it. So there's people living there right now. You can take a tour. If you're interested in this, go to YouTube and just type in, uh, there's a video when the military back in the the second Gulf War, when they went over there, they, they have a helicopter that went around Babylon, and you can look at the palace Saddam Hussein rebuilt. It's up on this mountain in Iraq. It's 55 miles south of Baghdad on the banks of the Euphrates River. So you can look at this helicopter go around, and they, you can watch the video. They do a tour through it. Anyway, it's, it's out there. They are trying to rebuild it. Now, Babylon has some kind of destiny, and then we'll see in Revelation 17 and 18 that all the merchants of the earth will cry when it's destroyed. And it'll be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah in one hour. Now, you may wonder, what in the world does God have against this ancient city in in the middle of Iraq? Well, you have to realize that all idolatry is rooted in Babylon. That's where it started. Everything. Everything that is corrupted in the world started there, at the Tower of Babel with Nimrod. Even the days of our week, the names of them came from Babylon, and they're corrupt. The, the pagan holidays like Estarte, the golden egg of Estarte, the worship of Estarte, we call it Easter in our culture. That's all rooted in Babylon. The Christmas uh, decorations and celebrations, it's rooted in Babylon. Uh, read Jeremiah 10 if you have a uh, question about that. But it all started there, and so idolatry spread from the, across the whole world right there, and there's a pending judgment from God against it all the way back from Genesis. So it's pretty amazing. It'll be, just watch it in the news. People are talking about it more. I remember back about 15 years ago, the U.S. government had a project to run fiber optic cable through Babylon and make an underground server to connect what they called connecting the east to the west. So they wanted to connect Eastern Asia, China, Japan, Thailand, all those nations with Western Europe and let that be the central hub where business could be done, transactions could happen immediately. You know, you think about that. Why would they want to do that? Well, it's to set up something in the future, apparently. So we'll look at those six chapters when we get there. In verse 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark, remember back to Revelation 13, the mark of the beast is his mark. And so when you work backwards from there, he has to take over the world before the mark can come on to the world. In order for him to take over, he has to rise to power and put three of the ten kings down. In order for him to rise to power, he has to be revealed. In order for him to be revealed, the church has to be gone. So do not bother looking at the world today going, is that the mark? Is that the mark? Is that the mark of the beast? Is that it? It's not here. The mark of the beast is not here, and we won't see it here because we're in the church, and the church has promised not to see that time. We're not appointed to wrath, and there's a, there's a whole, we could spend an entire day justifying the rapture from the word of God and his promises to us, but just, if you haven't, if you haven't studied that in depth, go back and watch uh, Revelation 4, the first lesson we did on that, but we will touch on that again at some point, but the mark and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. Remember those two spots 
Everything Satan does is a counterfeit. And so this was established in the Passover. You were to adopt the Passover in Egypt on your hand or your forehead. And that's how you knew that you were covered by the blood of the lamb. And so it's a counterfeit. It's the great counterfeit by Satan that, okay, you take it there because that's where God had you take it back in the Exodus in Egypt. So that's why that connection is there. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Okay, so we're not appointed to wrath, so this doesn't apply to us. Which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Okay, this is going to, this is going to get kind of heavy. Uh, I don't think you and I have a capacity to understand the wrath of God. The wrath of the creator of the universe. And I'm telling you, with everything going on in the world right now, he's upset. And his judgment does not sit idle forever. And so the wrath of God, without mixture, into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So the torment of them forever and ever. That's a long time. And what you have to realize, you know, physically, time is bound, is a physical property that's bound by mass acceleration and gravity. And we know that from Einstein. So if you're in a place where you don't have any mass, which is the real you, your spirit, your soul, that is, that is made in the image of God, it has no mass, and thus it's not bound to time, Thus, you are eternal, your friends are eternal, your loved ones are eternal, whether they like it or not. They are made in the image of God, and because they're made in the image of God, there's a piece of them that is eternal, that cannot be destroyed. But there's that piece of them, God made a way for them to spend eternity with him if they'll accept it. And if they don't accept it, then he has no choice but to withdraw himself, because he's a gentleman. So he has to withdraw himself. So speaking of the tribulation in Matthew 24, Jesus said, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So this is to those that are in the tribulation that come to know the Lord. They do not take the mark. They endure to the end. They will be saved. Praise God. And a lot of people think the greatest harvest ever on earth is going to come out of that seven-year tribulation. Because can you imagine finally... When the restraining Holy Spirit is removed from the earth, there's not a single believer on planet earth the second after the rapture. The Holy Spirit's the restrainer. He's restraining all of this evil right now, and he goes away. What is going to come upon the earth will be unimaginable. So Satan has been waiting for this moment forever. He cannot wait for this because he thinks he has a way to win from Hosea 5.15. If he destroys Israel... Jesus can't return because they can't petition him to return. So when the Holy Spirit's gone, literally all hell's going to break loose. And what Jesus is saying right here to those people in that time, if you endure to the end, you shall be saved. So do not blaspheme God. Do not take the mark. Worship the Lamb, the eternal gospel. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So one question you should immediately raise in your mind is, why is someone who takes the mark 
forever barred from being saved. You know, I know God's character. You know God's character if you're in the Bible. And God's character is not, well, I just need to go buy a gallon of milk for my children, so I need to take this mark, and thus I'm going to go buy groceries. Sorry, you can never be saved from that. That's not God's character. God would not judge someone to eternal separation from him for trying to buy groceries for their children. (laughs) So what is it? Well, you are made in the image of God. It could be something, and I will be the first to tell you, I don't have all of the answers, and none of us do, because we don't know what the mark is. We won't see it. But it could be something that you take on that literally changes your DNA so you're no longer made in the image of God. You could no longer be human at the DNA level. That could be it. So thus, you are unredeemable. We know angels are unredeemable. There's no redemption for them because they're not made in the image of God. So there's no redemption for Satan and the third of the angels that fell with him. That's why their only hope is to attack. That's why they have to go to war because they can't be redeemed. So it could be that. Uh, The mark could change something about that, about who you are, that you're no longer created that way. Something changes in you. It could be your final straw pledging allegiance to a false messiah, so you finally in your mind have made up, I'm rejecting the Lord and I'm going to accept this guy instead, this false pseudo-Christ. It could be that. It could be you've pledged your allegiance and given yourself over to that entity, whoever that is. So it could be, we don't know. We don't exactly know. But what we do know is that whoever takes it, it's got to be something very, very intentional because they will forever be barred from salvation. There is no going back at that point. So it's something very, very heavy. And I think, I remember as a kid thinking, man, people are going to be forced to take this thing. I think with all of the lying signs and wonders that are going to come upon the world, people are going to line up to take this thing because they're looking for a miracle. They're looking for a lying sign, much like you saw in Pharaoh's court during the Exodus event when the magicians could they could emulate some of the things that Aaron and Moses did, but not all of them. So this dark occultic power, they're going to head right into it and just accept it. Uh, verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, verse 13, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. So patience. Patience, you've heard that saying, patience is a virtue. And, and indeed it is. But patience is something you get from the Lord. How I was not a patient man right when I got saved. It took time. It takes time to grow in patience. In Luke 21, 9, in your patience possess ye your souls. In Romans 15, 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Okay, that's as a side note, that's one reason why so many people do not understand the book of Revelation because it has over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. So it is the for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. So people don't understand it because they don't study the Old Testament. But once you have a mastery of the Old Testament, it all makes sense and puts together. And it all points to Jesus from Psalms 40, verse 7. In the volume of the book, it's written of me, the Lord says. So, whatever, whatever, so things were written aforetime 
were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. In 1 Timothy 6, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. So God puts it in an important list. Hebrews 6.12, That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So it's by patience that we're going to have an inheritance in heaven. You've got to have patience. And serving Jesus takes a lot of patience. You're, you're so, if you're like me, and you see everything that's going on, everything that abhors the Lord, you're just thinking, okay, God, step off your throne. It's time. Let's get on with this. Bring us home or step down and just cut out the head off the snake. Either way, uh, we'll be good. But let's get going. But he is so long-suffering. And it's why the proof of that is in the life of Methuselah. So the prophecy was when he would die, the flood would come upon the world. That's literally what his name means. His death shall bring. And sure enough, he, the year he died was the year the flood came upon the world. Well, it also happens to be that he's the oldest living man in the Bible, 969 years. So it's just a proof of God's long-suffering that there was a lot of wickedness going on in the world. Noah preached this, about this flood for 120 years. So he had this boat sitting in his, in his front yard he was working on for 120 years. Can you imagine how much patience that man had to have for something that had never happened on the earth? It had never rained before, and he's telling them all, it's going to rain for 120 years? I mean, the ridicule and the, the making fun of, I mean, it took a lot of patience for him to stay grounded in God's word for that long. So... I heard a saying recently from someone that Noah was a conspiracy theorist until it started raining, and I love that saying. I don't, you can apply it to whoever you want, but it's a great saying. <laughs> so in verse 14, and I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one set like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the word ripe here at the end of verse 15, it literally means overripe, spoiled really is the concept. It's not, if you've ever had a ripe strawberry, it tastes amazing, right? It's rich, it's flavorful, it's colorful, but you get one that's just a little past ripe, and it's sour, and it's kind of a little withered. It might be kind of grayish on the end, and the, the green thing on the top is kind of withered. Anyway, that's overripe. That's what this word is. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. So, so the word ripe here, it really means it's overripe. So the world is overripe. It's spoiled for judgment, if that makes sense. It's not, it's not doing anyone any good anymore. It's gone past the point of adding value. So this is Jesus. Is this Jesus being carried by the Spirit, the white cloud? I think it probably is, but again, Acts 17, 11 applies. You need to search the scriptures for yourself and find out. But the behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud, one set like unto the Son of Man. So this is definitely Jesus, and his judgment is coming. But the Holy Spirit is in a cloud all throughout the Bible. The Shekinah glory is what it's called in, in the Hebrew, the Shekinah glory. It's in the wilderness. Remember, it leads them in the wilderness when it gives manna from heaven. 
It's at the giving of the law in Exodus 19 and 24. It's at the giving of the law the second time. Remember when Moses got those tablets from the law, he dropped them and broke them in pieces. The reason was because man could not carry the burden of the law. So he couldn't carry that. So God had to give it to him a second time and put it in the Ark of the Covenant where it's on, it rests on God's promise. Remember the Ark is carried by silver sockets. Silver always speaks of blood in the Bible. So the Ten Commandments, they're not really commandments, it's a Ten Covenant. It's the Ark of the Covenant, and that covenant is with God. But it's carried on silver, meaning the blood of Jesus. That's how it's carried. So they would lift it up literally on the blood of Jesus. That's the only way man could carry it. And when you think about that, the Ten, I I hate the word Ten Commandments, because they are commandments indeed, but it's really a covenant. It's a contract between you and the Lord, meaning I'm your provider, you don't need to steal. Uh, Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. You don't need to murder. You don't need to worship other gods because I am your God. When you go down all 10 of those, it's a relationship-based contract is what it is. It's the Lord saying, you don't need to do any of these because I will supply every one of your needs. You don't need to covet because I have everything you need. You don't need to steal because I'm your provider. You know, all of those. You don't need to lie because I am truth. Just go down all 10 of those and think about how God meets every one of those. And it's a, it's a contract. But the Shekinah glory, it's on the tabernacle in Exodus 40. It hovered above the mercy seat in Numbers. When 70 elders were chosen in Numbers, it filled on the cloud, thrust in his sickle, in verse 16, on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Uh, you do not want to be in this harvest. So I am praying that if you are in this room, you are in Jesus, and you are not a part of this. You, are, you have a one-way ticket that can never be forfeited to the throne room of the universe at the sound of the trumpet at the rapture to meet the Lord in the air. You're going to hear your name, I think. You're going to hear it's and Jesus kind of sets that model with calling out to Lazarus to come forward, remember? He could have just said, come forward, and we all would have gone but he said his name. So I think, I think you'll probably hear, hear your name at the rapture, but don't hold me accountable to that. Uh, if it's not, it's okay. It's a cool concept to think about. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had a sharp sickle, saying, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe or overripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridles and the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So that closes chapter 14. Hopefully you guys can figure all that out. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Let's, let's look at it for just a minute. We're almost finished. So what are we seeing here, really? You're seeing the wrath of God being poured out. And in Luke 4, Jesus does something very, very interesting. He goes into the temple, starting in verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto him, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So when you hear what Jesus says, you're thinking, yeah, he did all that. He came to break us free, declare the acceptable year of the Lord, set the captives free, heal the brokenhearted, all these things. Well, what was he reading from? You go back to Isaiah 61, and he's reading from the first two verses of Isaiah 61. So when you read verse 1, it's all the same that he reads in Luke 4 in the synagogue. But look at verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So right there in Luke, that's where he closes the book. But look at what he stopped at. He stopped at this comma. And after the comma, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. So he stopped there. That wasn't his mission the first time. His mission was not the day of vengeance. That's the second time. His mission the first time was to pave a way for all of humanity to come into him. So the day of vengeance of our God... Romans 12, 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, saith the Lord. That's a hard concept sometimes when you see video footage of Christians being murdered in Afghanistan, when you see people's children being slaughtered because their parents have a Bible. But God says, Be patient, vengeance is mine. So what is this vengeance all about? Well, in Isaiah 63, so get the picture, when Jesus returns, Israel, the back half of the tribulation, when they see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple by the Antichrist, they flee. Those that are Messianic Jews that believe the Lord flee to the rock city Petra and are sustained there for three and a half years by manna from heaven angels feeding them, whatever, and they're protected for three and a half years. They have to petition Jesus to return, and that's in Hosea 5.15. So they cry out to him to return. Finally, they're on the brink of utter disaster and extinction, and they realize they missed it the first time. They've got to cry out to him now to petition his return. They cry out to him, and boom, Revelation 19 happens. Jesus returns, and we are with him. And he wipes out all of the enemies surrounding Jerusalem by the word of his mouth. And this is a glimpse of what happens after that. So after he does that, he goes, remember we just read, the blood comes up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs in that war. It's not even a war. Jesus just wipes them out. But when he is blood-drenched in the enemy's blood, he goes to, in Isaiah 63, he goes to meet Israel, the remnant that have fled, to bring them back to Jerusalem. And this is them, Isaiah 63, 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel. I only know one man that fits that description. Traveling in the greatness of his strength. Again, one guy. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That's one guy. It's Jesus. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, they ask the Lord. And thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. So they're using that same idiom that's here in Revelation 14, the wine press with the grapes. I have trodden the wine press alone. 
my heart kind of sinks when I read that because I kind of thought that he would let us fight with him for just a minute uh, in our glorified, resurrected bodies. I don't know, it'd be like a scene out of Avengers or something. But he doesn't. He doesn't need our help. Uh, and of the people, there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and untrample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance, there it is. Remember Luke 4 and Isaiah 61. The day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. So there's a time. Jesus knows when that time will be. And it, every day we get closer and closer and closer. Verse 5, and I looked and there was none to help. I wish you would say, and I looked, but I didn't want Matt to help. Because I'm going to be there going, Lord, come on. Let us just give us five seconds. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. So that's his judgment. So in verse 20, remember, it comes up to the horse's bridles by the space of 1,600 furlongs. You can't really see it on this map. It's kind of small. But 1,600 furlongs, it's a horse racing term. It's about 200 miles or 320 kilometers. If you go to Mount Megiddo, so you've all heard the term Armageddon. It's, it's a Hebrew phrase. It just means Har Megiddo. It's Mount Megiddo is all it is. That's where Jesus stages this. It's not even a war, just his return and wiping them out. But it's Mount Megiddo. Go all the way down to Petra, this rock city in Jordan, and it's right at 320 kilometers. Now, on the map there on Google, it, it takes the highway, so I couldn't really make it as the crow flies. But Petra, where that red pin is, just to the southeast a little bit. So it's right at 320 miles. So that's the staging ground for this war, so to speak, when Jesus returns. It's right there. Mount Megiddo, the Valley of Jehoshaphat to the south, Basra is in Jordan, where Jordan escapes the thumb of the Antichrist from Daniel chapter 12. And it's to give the remnant a place to, to flee to during that time. But that distance is 1,600 furlongs, which I find amazing, because that's exactly what God says in chapter 14. So, uh, the last two slides. Get into action, a call to action. You know, in John 5, I was reading earlier this morning, and it's the, it's the story about the man that was impotent. He was limp. He couldn't get up and walk under his own accord. And remember, there's that pool of water, and an angel would come down and stir the pool, and Jesus comes to him and says, man, what are you doing? And he basically says, well, people that go in this water are healed, but I'm, I'm limp. I'm weak. I can't walk, I, and there's nobody to pick me up and put me into the water when the angel stirs it. So someone else comes in and gets healed, and I can never do it. Well, he, it's amazing because he's there for 38 years. He's with this, this affliction. And 38 is the number of the, of the genealogy, one generation in the wilderness. That's how long Israel wandered the wilderness. So there's a link there that they're trying to get saved by works, by the law. And really, they just need to be saved by Jesus, by his voice. And remember what Jesus says. He says, uh, rise up and take your bed and walk. And so he does. And he goes to the temple and the Pharisees ask him, who healed you? And he says, I don't know. I, this guy came and just said, rise up and take your bed and walk, and I was healed. Well, Jesus finds him in the temple, and then he tells him, you can go forward and sin no more. See, that pattern is deliberate, that he had to be saved, then he could sin no more because he had the authority of the Lord. So 
if you're trying to get saved by works, it's a fruitless effort. Uh, he, need, he didn't need to be saved by walking into water. He needed to be saved by meeting the living water. And that's Jesus. And Jesus just had to speak to him. So what you have to do is get into the word of God if you're in Jesus and build your faith. What is it? It's Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the evidence of things not seen. Why is it important? Hebrews 11.6. Without it, it is impossible to please God. So you can't please him unless you've got faith. So you better know how to go get it. And that's Romans 10.17. Faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God. So the only way to get faith is to be in his word, which is Jesus, like we talked about from the beginning, and to sit with the author of the universe. So if you're here and you're not saved, if you need prayer, uh, come see us. Come forward after the service. If you need help in any way, we are here to help. We're here to help you walk through this life, this crazy world with the Lord and to have the strength and the patience of the saints. But if you need Jesus, it's very simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. You don't need to add anything to it. If you're watching this online, you don't need to add anything to it. Just take him at his word and then be energized by the giving of the Holy Spirit and use that authority to overcome any stronghold in your life. So he wants to bring you home. In Isaiah 118, come let us reason together. You can't reason. In Amos, he says, how can two walk together lest they be in agreement? Well, you can't walk with the Lord unless you're in agreement, and you can't get into agreement unless you know his words. So again, it, that all connects. But your sins will be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So with that, I'm going to close us in prayer. And after, after we pray, Ryan's going to cut the camera and I just want to talk to you guys real quick about one thing because I've had a lot of people ask me. So just sit tight for just a minute after I pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you for Revelation 14. God, we thank you for the continuing of the unsealing of your word verse by verse and the hope and the promise that lies within. So Lord, we just thank you for that. And God, I pray a special blessing upon everyone in this room today all of our children, our families as we go out into the week ahead, that, Lord, you would fight for us, that you would go forward, and that you would conquer city by city across this land from the east to the west. Rain down in this nation, God. Rain down on Capitol Hill and walk across this nation, bringing righteousness and holiness and revival every step of the way. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.